with condos, you could be on the same street and there's one building across the street from another and one is like to be avoided and another one's a great investment. So when you're borrowing at two and 3%, you know, you're not only borrowing free money, you're actually being paid to borrow mm -hmm. because inflation is running at four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 in certain instances on certain categories, sometimes even higher, but they've lent you that money at one and a half or two. What's up, everybody? Today, we have another real estate-related podcast episode with Mr. Justin Nemi. Justin is one of the top residential brokers in all of Montreal. He's an expert when it comes to luxury condos, luxury homes, apartment buildings, literally everything residential real estate-related. This guy's the man. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. It's an amazing one. What's up, Justin? Hey, how are you, Mike? Good, good, good. Thanks for coming, man. My Appreciate pleasure. it very much. My pleasure, man. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll jump right into it. The first thing I want to ask you is, is the real estate industry, is, is real estate going to shit? Do we need to start buying canned goods, <laughs> getting stuff, preparing for the apocalypse? Or, you know, what's your opinion on that? Definitely not, is my opinion on it. Um, I think that we're definitely heading into choppy times, especially, you know, knowing everyone's kind of age group on this podcast. I think this is something that we haven't necessarily lived. We haven't necessarily lived a rate tightening cycle like we're going through right now. But my opinion kind of briefly is that it's going to be short term, very choppy, but medium to long term, you know, the positive outlook is still very, very strong. Mm -hmm. And that's backed up by a lot of fundamentals, a lot of data. Uh, anywhere from immigration to, you know, just fundamental demand on, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that product. Um, also just, you know, economic activity is still very strong right now. What we're seeing, why there's a bit of a slowdown in all sectors, it's really monetary policy that's driving that. So all that to say, no, uh, I don't think that we're, we're going to shit as you were saying, and don't think it's time to necessarily buy canned goods, but um, it's definitely time to be a little more cautious. And I do think that whatever you're acquiring right now, you have to be doing it with a very sound mind. And with, as they, you know, as they say in French, les reins solides. So like, you know, you got to be solid right now. So yeah. I don't think everything's going to shit, but I do think that, uh, you know, some choppy times are ahead maybe for the next, you know, 12 to 18, 24 months as we see kind of how this rate cycle plays out. Yeah. And so how do we navigate that? Like, how do we navigate these rising interest rates? Well, Navigating rising interest rates. Obviously, I think, honestly, it's it's very dependent on your personal financial situation. Some people are, you know, right now, liquidity is obviously very important. So whatever you're buying, I've, I've always, I was kind of schooled into this, into this school of thought. And I, I, I try and apply it in my personal investments, the investments I make with my family, and even as much as I can towards my clients. It's hard with your clients because you don't control their finances necessarily. But um, I've always been schooled that whatever you buy in terms of real estate, right? You have to remember that the power of real estate is leverage. So you don't make your money just by buying a property cash and then just waiting for it to appreciate. Although it does, but the real returns are made by leveraging, right? So when you do leverage is a very, very powerful tool, but you do have to make sure that you always have bullets in the gun 
that are there to protect you into hard times. So how do you navigate this? I think it's a time we're going to see over the next, you know, 18 to 24 months, there's going to be a lot of opportunistic deals for people to buy because some people did overextend themselves, whether it be on the commercial side or even, you know, on the residential side, if the economy softens, there could potentially be some headwinds there. But whatever you're acquiring, as long as you have some dry powder behind it to ride out any potential, you know, momentary downturns, you're going to come out of it on the other side, I think, you know, very much where you want to be. Yeah. And I'm yeah. curious, like, how do you prepare for that? Like, what what's a, like, what's a safe amount to have as a safety net, let's say? I think that that's a very subjective question. So a lot of, you know, if we're talking on the residential, the commercial side, I think it's different. So on the residential side, obviously, that's very tied to income. You know, right. right now we're seeing, you know, in a lot of Western countries, Canada, the United States, even in, you know, parts of Western Europe, employment is still very strong. It's part of what's causing, you know, the continued, you know, demand on goods and services, which I think even has stumped a lot of central bankers. They probably thought demand was going to come down further than it did thus far in the tightening cycle. Yeah. But um, on the residential side, obviously, it's very tied to income. So if you feel secure in your job, you have the type of position that you don't think will be downsized in an economic downturn. Um, I think you'll be okay as long as, you know, obviously you need a safety net, you know, for as a contingency for whatever could potentially happen. On the commercial side, it's a little bit different because you have to remember that commercial real estate is really an investment in the truest sense of the word in that you're not buying it just to hold it. You're buying it because it also pays you revenue, right? Mm -hmm, so. Mm -hmm. If the numbers shake out properly and you know that you're buying into an asset class where the underlying revenue that it's paying you is relatively secure, whether that be on the industrial side, multifamily side, or even, you know, the office or, you know, straight commercial side, whatever it is, as long as you feel like your tenant base that's going to be generating that revenue is solid and consistent, you should be able to ride out, you know, whatever temporary momentary year to however long until we get into an eventual easing cycle. Um, it always pays to have cash on the side too. Yeah. Even even in the best, honestly, like I'm a bit of a, I guess you could say I'm a little more conservatively skewed and I tend to advise my clients and my, myself and even my family that way. Um, I'm not always right in that regard. You know, there's times where the market has shot up and maybe it would have paid to been a little more overzealous. But um, even in the best of times when cash was paying not much in the bank you know that dry powder was virtually sitting there maybe even getting deflated because things were rising so quickly i never kind of lost sight of the value of having it there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you do never know when those contingencies need to be kind of implemented yeah so as long as you own an investment property and you do have some dry powder on the side that can come to you know compensate in those moments you'll be okay in the long run because in the long run, your returns are, I don't want to say guaranteed because there's nothing that's guaranteed in life. But if you look at past performance and you kind of look at inflationary tendencies, you will be very good in the medium to long run. It's the short run you always have to kind of account for to make sure that you can hold on to whatever it is that you've acquired if ever there's an inevitable kind of temporary spike on the downside. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And just so I know, for example, like obviously you said it depends with income, right? Yeah. So let's say someone who's making a little bit less income and they're thinking of buying through the times, do you think that it would be better, let's say for the next year to maybe rent and then stack up a little bit rather than put that five, 10% down? So 
It's the rent to own question is a very, uh, very interesting question right now where we like really, and I mean right now, like as of today, that equation is maybe tilted into the, I don't, it's, I don't want to say it's better to rent, but there's now an argument as to why it's better, right? Like two or three years ago when money was virtually free, one and a half and 2%, it was very hard to argue in the favor of renting if you could afford to buy, you know, some people just yeah, can't yeah, afford yeah. to buy and that's understandable. They need a place to live. But if you could buy, you know, the general consensus was you should. Today, there's an argument to be made. Well, you know, if I buy this place, it's costing me, you know, between maintenance costs and, you know, mortgage, you know, the cost of the debt, the maintenance, taxes, whatever. Let's say it's 3000 a month, but I can rent that same place for, I don't know, twenty two or 2300 a month or 2400 a month in the market. So there's a substantial savings there, right? So now the question is valid of should I buy, should I rent, should I buy? I'm still of the opinion that if you have a medium to long-term outlook, purchasing is still the better option. Um, you are building equity, although, you know, right now, you you know, maybe costing you a few hundred dollars more a month to own versus rent in certain circumstances. Real estate, in my opinion, and I've always believed this, it's a medium to long, long-term, you know, outlook. Uh, if someone's telling me, should I buy right now and I plan on selling in 18 months, maybe my answer to them is probably not because there's some fixed costs in purchasing and then in selling. So you, you may just end up in the same place or a little bit behind. But if you have a three to five, seven, eight year outlook, I think that even if it's temporarily costing you a little bit more a month, a few hundred dollars more a month now to own with the potential plus value that you know, I think a lot of professionals in the industry are still forecasting will happen. And I, and there's, you know, even banks and CMHC and whatnot, if you, if you really read into it, their outlook on the housing market in Canada, in all the major metro centers is still, there's a huge shortage, right? The only thing that's holding it back right now is high borrowing. Yeah. So eventually, you know, the market's going to find an equilibrium and prices should return more. I mean, not that they've necessarily peeled back that much, but we should still see upward pressure on prices. So yeah. I think if when you factor that on a three, five, seven year time horizon, you're still going to come out a net winner if you purchase versus renting. If you have a very short yeah. time horizon, you know, maybe, maybe Be the careful. rental option is yeah. a better right. option. What I find people miss is like when they're deciding to rent versus buy, they look at the total payment, right? They look at it like if I'm going to rent, I'm going to pay 2000 And if I buy, I, I'm spending $2,500, let us mm-hmm. just say. Let's just say it. At the end of the day, you could probably make them even 2000 2000 But I'm just saying, let's say some people think that if they buy, it'll be a, a higher payment than if they rent. But they're not taking into consideration that you're paying, when you're buying something, you're paying interest and principal. You're not just, yeah. you're not losing all the money and it's, no. it's not gone forever. It's as no. if a certain portion of it that goes to principal is in like a, a savings yeah, account that you yourself. can't touch. Yeah, you're paying you're yourself. You're paying yourself. Exactly. So you're not paying not your whole payment is like when you're paying rent, that whole payment is obviously going towards another party. That's correct. You know, making that revenue and offsetting it by their costs and whatnot. But when you're, when you're purchasing, as you, as you mentioned, Mike, a a, a significant portion of it is going towards paying yourself. Now, obviously, you know, mortgages are a little bit of a complicated thing. You know, we look at them on a daily basis. So we kind of have an understanding of how an amortization schedule works maybe better than, you know, the average person walking in the street. But as rates go up, more of that portion is interest and mm-hmm. less of that portion is principal. 
despite the fact that the, so the payment may not go up as much as you anticipate it to, but it's just a bigger portion of it is going to interest. That's just kind of the way a mortgage works. It's kind of like voodoo, honestly. Yeah, yeah, even yeah. when I look at it sometimes, I've been looking at it every day for the last you know decade, but even I sometimes be like, how does this work? But it does work that way. Um, but yeah, you're right. In, in, the, in the medium to long run, you are paying yourself, right? And you have to remember that when you're buying and the bank is lending you money at, you know, whatever it is. Now it's higher. It's, you know, five, five and a half, six percent, four percent, whatever it is. Before it was virtually, you know, free. free. And really, actually, it was more than free because if you were borrowing money at two percent from the bank and inflation is running at six, seven, eight, nine. I know that they like to tell you it's three and four and five, but I think we can mostly agree that on the day to day stuff that we're consuming, you know, your price like isn't going from a dollar to a dollar three. It's yeah. it's a lot higher than that, right? Yeah. Like I don't want to contradict the Bank of Canada or whatever, but I think we all feel it in our lives that it's actually a lot higher than what the posted central bank rates are of, of inflation. But so when you're borrowing at two and three percent, you know, you're not only borrowing free money, you're actually being paid to borrow mm-hmm. because inflation is running at four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten in certain instances on certain categories, sometimes even higher. But they've lent you that money at one and a half or two. So although now the equilibrium has shifted a little bit less in the favor of the borrower, because when you're borrowing at five and six, it's a lot closer to what actual inflation is. And and nonetheless, just servicing the debt is harder, right? Because you still do have to come up with the money. Yeah. But you're still borrowing at what virtually inflation is or in reality, sometimes even really less. So that's where it works in your favor. You're borrowing that money from the bank at a certain interest rate. You're freezing that loan in time. But the value of the asset that you're borrowing against is actually, in theory, appreciating at the rate of the inflation, at the rate of the labor that it costs to build it, at the rate of the materials that it costs to build it. And you've borrowed it for less of that rate. So the rent to own, uh, rent versus own thing now it's maybe a little more understandable to hold off if you have a very short time horizon. But in, like I said, I'll repeat it in a medium to long term time horizon. Um, I still think it's very, very heavily skewed towards the owning versus the renting. Uh, oh, and I, I yeah, no, I agree with you as well. But I would, I'm just saying, like, for example, let's say obviously owning now there's, for example, let's just say the house. Right. And like we had discussed this a little bit before was if someone owns a house obviously to keep that saving they still have to say you know let's say the swimming pool that breaks the little fixes there would you recommend for example you know let's say someone's kind of a little bit more strapped to still potentially own in the long run or to rent and then maybe save up a little bit and then own well listen i mean it depends what you're like like everything in life it depends what your financial goals are and it depends what you're willing to sacrifice in terms of your lifestyle in order to do so. I'll never advise somebody to whatever the circumstance may be. I would never personally advise someone to put themselves in a situation where they feel strapped to maintain a property. Right. It's just life is, you know, there's more facets to it than just money. There's your health, there's your mental well-being. So you don't want to be like, <laughs> I'm cutting on my everything just to, to pay for the pool maintenance because I think this is going to be a good investment in eight years. Yeah. Unless that's really your objective. You know, some people do have that objective. They say, I'm going to really sacrifice now because I believe in this investment or whatnot, and that's fine. But I don't blanket advise people to do that. 
Um, but if you're asking me whether I think it's worth putting yourself in a little bit of an uncomfortable position, like a little bit, I'm not talking like where you're really making huge concessions on your life, but where you're maybe making some sacrifices to pay for that, you know, HVAC system that you don't want to replace and crap, this came up now and I got to do that. Yeah, it's worth it because it's like, it's like everything. It's like working out in the gym. It's like anything. It's any gain, whatever gain you're going to make, it's going to come with the sacrifice and it's going to come with that diligence. So it is worth it to put yourself in a little bit of a, a little bit of an uncomfortable position, but not in a situation where, you know, you're, you're really jeopardizing your, your yeah. well-being. If, yeah. if that were the case, I would tell someone, you know, wait a little longer, even if the price goes up a little bit in a year from now or two years from now, it will maybe, but you'll be in a better state of mind and you'll be in a better position when the time comes and you'll be able to manage the asset better and you'll make better decisions so you'll still probably end up a winner in the long run yeah but if you can do it but your only concern is man i may not be able to go out twice a week to the restaurant and blow that three four hundred bucks because i might then you're probably better off doing it because instead of just spending it on pizza and beer and whatever you're making an investment in yourself that will ultimately pay off again in the medium to long run you know like yeah, yeah short term nothing is secure but in the long run good decisions pay dividends so i like i, I do think it's worth Love it. it i like yeah, that i do and, think it's worth it and and how did we get here though like let's take a step back yeah. okay like how did we get into this environment i mean i guess i'll summarize it a little bit we had covid yeah nobody could leave their homes we didn't want the economy to go completely bust yeah so we print a bunch of money we put it all in the economy yeah why is raising interest rates the answer to that problem? So, man, that's such a multifaceted question. Um, look, COVID, just to take a step even further back from your question and to get to it, a lot of like blame is put on governments of like, how could they, you know, now in hindsight, right? Like, look at this inflation, look at this, look at that. Um, but the reality is, as much as I could criticize or not criticize or you or you, the reality, I think, is that if I was put in that chair, you were put in that chair, you were, we probably would have all done relatively similar. I mean, I'm talking from the financial perspective, fiscal perspective, right? Um, it was a very unknown situation. You know, you have people who need to put groceries on the table. The answer to it was just carpet bomb it with whatever it needs, money, liquidity injected into the system. We're now living those consequences. But I do, at least if we're talking on the real estate side, okay? I know a lot of people say COVID is what stimulated super high real estate prices, that that huge spike that we saw in the last three, four years, that really, that straight lineup. And then that cheap money is what caused that. I do agree that that holds a certain percentage of responsibility. But I don't think it was the cause. I think it was the accelerator. So... I think where we are now is where we were inevitably heading mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. of underlying fundamentals, but that COVID kind of exasperated that need instantly and made people real. And then, you know, you add very cheap money on top of it. Yeah. That it just kind of like it poured gasoline on a fire that was already burning yeah, and yeah, already yeah. growing. Yeah. So I think that when the pandemic hit, you had a lot of people who, uh, you know, like specifically in Canada, there's been a lot of conversation about the housing market, but specifically the single family housing market, right? Like the price of single family houses spiked. 
Um, and like that, that was all COVID generated because of COVID money. I, I don't believe that to be the case. I think again, it was the accelerator. And the reason why is because you got to look at what is the product that's available on the market in terms of condos, right? As, as building costs gone up, construction costs gone up, people's borrowing capacities remain somewhat limited due to, you know, revenues that don't necessarily rise as quickly. So what have developers done? And understandably so they've built smaller, more efficient condominiums, you know, four or 500 square feet. There's, there's even as small as 250 square feet now, right? But let's say, you know, your average one bedroom is four or 500 square feet. Young couples living in there, getting married, planning on having a family. They were probably putting some money aside to eventually purchase a house. Prices were rising, but at a rate that was high, but not unfathomable. When COVID hit, everybody or a lot of people all of a sudden said, we need more space. We need it now. We can't live in this situation anymore. We either have a baby on the way, we have a young child, uh, whatever the case may be. And then on the flip side, you have elderly, more elderly populations, you know, that boomer generation and even the generation above them that was maybe thinking of downsizing that all of a sudden was like, I'm not giving up my house because, you know, it's it's the space I have, my backyard, my whatever. And so all, they, they also were like, you know, I don't know if I want to sell yet. So they kind of pulled back on the inventory even further. Then you add the the cheap money. But I think the the the, the underlying takeaway from this is that the single family housing market in Canada is a very, very, very particular one because and, I, and I've believed this for years, by the way, even before COVID. And I, I mentioned, I think, just before we even got yep. on air that I bought my single family house in 20, you know, 18, 2019 before COVID. Mm-hmm. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I had no intention of living there. I wasn't married yet. I didn't have a family yet. I was living in a condo that I already owned. I was super happy there. But I bought it because I kind of saw the dynamic of the market and where the demand was going. And I was like, you know what? Now is the time to get into this market because I'm like, it's not going to get any more affordable. I was proven right more than even I anticipated, to be honest, because, again, the COVID accelerator. But the fundamentals of the single family housing market in the major metro areas of of Canada. So, you know, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, you know, the sub major areas, Calgary now, which is growing Edmonton and whatnot, those bigger markets. The reality is that. To build single-family houses, they're extremely inefficient. So it's an inefficient use of land, right? You know, now, especially with urban density and more population, we're trying to actually densify zoning, whereas single-family residential is, you know, you need neighborhoods to build them, you need roads, you need infrastructures, and you need to commit to a lot of land, Mm -hmm. let alone the construction cost, which is extremely high. But we'll put that aside for now. So when you put that all into, into consideration... And then you factor like on the flip side, you have condominiums, right? Where they can be great investments, but really depending on the areas in which you're buying them and the fundamentals behind it, condos can be built in a lot of different areas. They can be built in industrial areas that all of a sudden, you know, we're putting up a building there, literally surrounded by industrial property, but we're putting up a building there. Then the neighbor, you know, follows and starts developing and they can be built vertically. So, you know, cities can zone to say, okay, we'll allow you to go 20 floors if we, if we feel we have the need and there's a demand. Whereas single family houses are an inefficient, quote unquote, use of land. Yeah. You know, you're building one house with four independent walls with a backyard. So the tendency is shying away from that. So the supply is limited. Yeah. You know, you cannot build the supply to meet the demand. Whereas in the condo market, you can theoretically build the supply. Yeah, you know, theoretically, yeah. you can just build as high up as you want. There's a cost to it, so the costs will rise and values will rise. 
but you can theoretically meet the demand. Single family houses, you can't build one more house in Westmount now than than there currently is. Yeah. And the only way to do it is by knocking one down that it already is there. So it's a zero sum game. Minus one plus one. So when you look at that from a fundamental perspective over a medium to long term long term time horizon, I am extremely bullish on the single family housing market in the major metro areas of Canada. Wow, that's yeah. crazy because I never like obviously, you know, you being in real estate thinking of that for me i just had like a aha moment like dude i've never thought of it like that yeah. which is pretty crazy like it was yeah. just like it makes a lot of sense yeah. you know if you're looking at it from that perspective but like from someone like myself like obviously you guys are in real estate you know this is what you guys do this yeah. is what you guys see for me i'm like man this doesn't make now i'm like holy moly and, and also this makes a lot of and sense and also yeah. and this is like you know this is a different kind of on a different tangent but on the same topic you also have to look at it from the the value perspective, right? So when I was when I bought my my house, I looked at the price that I could purchase it for versus what the alternative, you know, in let's say a urban condominium, which I by the way I own a number of them and I'm I am a believer in them. They they have their place and you got to know how to buy them and buy right, but they're a great product as well. But when I was looking for a house, I was like I felt that the value proposition was skewed. I'm like, okay, for this price, I'm able to buy, you know, a single family detached house on 7,000 square feet of land that belongs to me, big backyard, X amount of square footage and a big house for, let's say, 25% less than a 950 square foot condominium, you know, seven minutes down the road. You know, and I looked at, okay, one is new, one is older. There's a lot of factors to consider, but I looked at that value proposition and I'm like, it's, it's heavily at that time I felt was leaning towards the value of a single family house. And I still believe that that is the case. The housing market for single family house, whether it's detached or, or, or semi-detached or whatnot, anything that's not super high densified, you just, you can't make the land to build it, especially in those central urban areas and to me that's what gives it its value because you it's hard to replace the quality of life that that offers you especially at the age group that we're in right when you're an older person or a young single person like you you don't necessarily have the value out of it but in that mid cycle of life between the ages of 30 and let's say 65 70 the value that it provides you to live and have your own four walls and have space to really raise your family um, versus the price, the excess price that you're paying for it as opposed to the other product, I still think is skewed in the favor of single-family houses, which is why I'm very... Uh, I agree yeah, with you as well, man, because like, like you said, you know, I'm I'm 25 right now. Yeah. Obviously, downtown, you know, it's like there's a lot of, a lot of things happening, you know, but as I keep going in my career, you know, keep growing and growing and growing, I'm like... Man, obviously, you know, like I want to go into something bigger yep. and have more space for myself. That way, you know, you have your own home. Like I have a home office, whatever. I'm, I'm blessed yep. that it's still pretty big, but there isn't the backyard. There isn't the privacy that everything that you're like, okay, now I need a little bit more space. I've yep. done it. I did my time here, which I think everyone needs to feel that. Yep. But if you look in that perspective, 100%. And do you feel like, for example, like moving like as we're like for example Vaudreuil right now like yeah. that that's expanding 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 mm-hmm. so do you think like okay in the future that right now it's not as popping but potentially that that could be the new west island definitely i mean it's it's i i don't even think it, it it's an opinion i think it's almost a fact right because you have to look at demographics so 
the city, I mean, if we're talking about our city, right? We'll, we'll talk about other cities we don't know, but it's a relatively similar factor everywhere, yeah, but yeah. let's talk about our city, right? The city is growing. There's a growing population that's coming in every year into the, you know, the into Quebec, but into the greater Montreal area. And the demand for that type of product is going to continue to grow just by virtue of the numbers and the people that are going to require it. So a place like, for example, Bordeaux, and I would even say further out, you know, you go out to even Mirabel and whatnot. And, you know, now you go out and it's a lot of empty land and there's a lot of new development. But again, I always go back to this. If you go to a medium to long term time horizon, the short term, no one can tell you what's going to happen. If I told you what's going to happen short term, call me a liar. I don't know. You know, it's, something can happen tomorrow that changes the equation. But in the medium to long term, it's inevitable that that urban sprawl is going to continue in one facet or another. So if you're telling me right now, you know, I'm a young guy, I'm 25. I'm thinking of maybe moving out to Vaudreuil, buying myself a nice townhouse with a nice, you know, three, 4,000 square foot lot. Yeah, it might not be as sexy right now as living, you know, in, you know, more dense urban downtown core area but i'm making this is I'm, I'm making that little sacrifice as more of a long-term play do i think you're going to be well served for it yes but that's not to say also because i have to preface like condominiums are are very very good investments as well you just have to know where to buy them uh what areas what buildings the thing is with condos versus single family houses is you know, like when you when you look at a single family house, if you go and take a street, for instance, unless there's one house that really has a big problem, but like, let's say you put that aside, they all relatively have a similar profile, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like, okay, it's four walls, uh, you know, brick siding, whatever it is, blah, blah, blah. Their value is relatively similar. One's more renovated, one's less. With condos, you could be on the same street and there's one building across the street from another and one is like to be avoided and another one's a great investment. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of intricacies to understand mm -hmm. into where you're buying a condo and which building you should be investing in um that you you should be you need to be well advised, right? By somebody who really knows that sector, knows that market, and that person should ideally know not only that building but should know the, you know, the lay of the land of everything around and tell you why this is a good investment in this building versus across the street which is maybe $80 a square foot cheaper, but why you should say hold off. You know, yeah. pay more, buy here. Why? Financial health of the building, the management of it, the construction qualities, the layouts, the divisions, the maintenance fees, and where we're projecting those to go. Looking at the, um, you know, the, you know, now with the new law they passed in Quebec, I think it was about two years ago. Now every building has to have kind of a long-term maintenance plan. You have to be able to understand those things. But definitely to go back to your question, uh, if you're looking at those perimeter areas in Montreal, Vaudreuil, which I don't even consider that perimeter. No, anymore, it isn't. You know? anymore. Not anymore. No. But but let's say, you know, it still yeah. isn't, you know, on island. I, I get where you're going or like certain areas of Laval or even pushing the Poivrian, Blainville, Saint-Thérèse and whatnot, the South Shore. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very, very optimistic on the on the value of those. Yeah. Areas. And obviously, you know, you talk about the long term and I just it brings it back to this point, like baby boomers is a big thing, right? Like that yeah. makes up a large majority of our population. Yeah. Not now, but let's say in, I don't know, let's say 20 years, 30 years. Do you think that that will have an effect of the pricing? You know what I mean? Like, obviously, we keep expanding because, yeah. you know, prices keep getting more expensive, like Kirkland, Pierrefonds. Yeah. You know, people keep going out, out, out. But now, let's say, you know, I don't know the logistics of, like, the percentage of the population yeah. of, let's say, Montreal for baby boomers. But let's say, like, my dad's a baby boomer, his house, yeah. you know, in, I don't know, God bless him, like, 30 more years, like, 
you know, yeah, eventually, no, but eventually you need to dispose they, of the home, that, do you think move that, to a different living condition. But again, if you're looking at the long-term perspective, then yeah. it doesn't really matter, But again, right? what's, let me ask you, what, what's the question there? Is it that as the baby boomers exit the market, is that going to be a factor? Going back to closer and closer and closer to Montreal City, yeah. to the city, to the city center, will, be, yeah. will drop the prices. Well, what, what I'll no. say is like, do you understand? It's a supply and demand The more expensive it is, sure. as you keep going out, 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 land yeah, gets mean, cheaper. Of course, I mean, it's, that that it's, it's a logical a value reset. proposition, right? For sure. If you, yeah. Westmount's always going to be more land per square foot yeah. than even you know, Town of Mount Royal, which is going to be more than Dill Saint Laurent, which is going to be more than Dollar, exactly. which is going to be more than Madrid. As you keep going, and out, that's right? probably probably you know, unless something happens and a new center is built somewhere, but that's probably going to continue to be from now till when we're too old to even talk yeah, about it right yeah, right um you know the same phenomenons are in new york and hong kong and shanghai i'm sure and all the major cities sure, of the world sure, right sure. if you want to be in center of the action it's always going to be a little more but uh but i don't think that the boomers exiting the market the single family house market let's say because i get your point right at some point there's a lot of them they own a lot of houses they're not going to need them at some point either because they'll pass on or they'll just need they're still alive but they'll need to you know, they can't support a home anymore, so they need to go towards a condo or maybe assisted living facility or whatnot. But do I think that's going to negatively impact or have some kind of negative impact on pricing? No, not at all. Because I think that the demand, the new demand that's coming in far outweighs what is going to be available on the market. And don't forget, there's another phenomenon too. Boomers now, and you know, even the generation a little bit older than them and some even younger, which are starting to transition into retirement, there's a lot of keeping assets in the family now. So a lot right. of, of the baby boomer generation is saying, well, you know, we're 73 or 68 or whatever. We have a son or a daughter who's, you know, whatever, 30, 32, just got married. I'm going to sell them the house. So they keep it so they don't have to go and kind of right. play the game of trying. So, no, um, with the amount of new, you know, population that's coming in mainly through immigration, which there seems to be if you look at, Canada's statistics it's there growing. seems to be no slowdown there I mean no. it's, it's it's full steam ahead yeah you know and um, that demand is going to continue to grow and, and a lot of that population that's coming in some of them are, are are you know new arrivals who are you know really looking to make their life in Canada and arriving with not much in terms of financial resource but a lot of them actually are coming with financial resource you know so they're ready to participate in that market relatively fast it's not the same as if you look at let's say our grandparents generation who came here and probably rented for the first 15 years or 20 years before they could finally afford to buy that duplex now it's like within two three years they're in you know mm -hmm. they're they're here mm -hmm. they're renting their place temporarily for a year or two they're finding good representation representation their job is secure they have the income and they're in you yeah know? so yeah. No, I, I don't think that that's going to negatively impact values uh, at all, actually. I still think it's there's way more upwards pressure on the market than there is downwards. And don't take that from me. Take it from 100%. the CMHC. Take it from the Canadian government. Take it from every major bank in this country. They, they all kind of say the same thing. We need more than we can build Yeah. just to get to equilibrium. Wow. Yeah. And the only reason why right now the, you're seeing some price pressures come down a little bit it's because monetary policy is high which is you know it's normal at some point people are having a hard time qualifying or whatnot but long term long term yeah, again that's, that's not what's gonna all do anything about. to stop it i yeah. don't think no i agree and that's why and, that, and that's why i find like when you're talking about single family homes i find it similar to when you're speaking about industrial because it's like 
there's a limited amount of land yes. and you need so much land to build that asset yes. within the city. And there's only a, they only zone a specific amount of land for that use. Absolutely. And it's like, if, like you said, if they change the, if they, if they, if, if at one point they want more density in a yep. specific area, they could take any building and say, you know what, we'll make a thousand units on yep. this lot. Any even home, yes. they could do that too. But they can't just take any area and say, we're going to designate this 4,000 square feet of land. It's going to be homes. It's like, okay, you're going to build one home. Yes. You know what I mean? Exactly. You're going to one unit versus potentially a thousand units. And it's the same thing for industrial right now. Everything's on one level. Mm -hmm. So it's like you need 100,000 square feet of land to build 50,000 square feet of building. Exactly. It's the same thing for homes. I think that's really the value proposition of buying a home. It's like you can't really well, replace the, the industrial, it. The industrial thing is a very, very good point, actually. And I, we may have even discussed this you know, offline a few times together. Um, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that because if you look at industrial properties... And again, it's not, you know, my my number one field of expertise. I do understand it, you know, on, yeah. a, on a good base level. I'm more on the residential and on the multifamily side. That's really where my two areas of strong specialization are. But I do understand the intricacies of the industrial market. Um, you saw COVID as an accelerator there too, just like you saw single family houses, right? So why is that? Okay, cheap money, fine, sure, no problem. That's always going to be a factor. So, But it can't be the only explanation. Uh, um, the only explainer because there's a lot of asset classes that didn't skyrocket in COVID despite cheap money. Right? Yeah. You know, they, they may have gone up a little bit, they benefited, but they didn't make a, like a vertical lineup. And the industrial sector is a, is, is a, is a, is a perfect example because like you said, very similar single family houses, it's built on land, you know, like it's not built vertically. I know there are certain examples in certain cities when price per square foot hit a certain point where it becomes profitable to do yeah, it, but yeah. it's not We're not norm. even close. We're yeah. not even close. Yeah. It's not the norm. It's not the norm. So relatively speaking, it's still a, you know, one, one for one game of one footprint on a piece of land. And also as the economy is moving so much more towards a fulfillment model and a, you know, warehousing model and maybe less of an office model or a commercial retail footprint model, although that will still exist, yeah, it's never going away. I agree. But you know, it's it's the the tendency is more towards the direct fulfillment to clients. That you know that people, it's like everyone realized, oh, holy cow, you know, we really need this. And you just saw rents and in industrial. I don't know, you know more than me, double, triple, yeah. Triple they have in certain cases, quadruple sure. maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, when I started wow. in 2020, rents were at like five dollars. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and now they're at like fifteen, 15 twenty. And so this triple? is in how many years? Just out of curiosity, because I two years, three, two, three years, three, Now it's it's approaching three years. Yeah. yeah. I'm just curious because obviously, like you guys, like I'm in marketing, right? But yeah. I'm just curious. Do the same laws apply for industrial as commercial? Or in, no. in, in terms in of rent, raising the rent, yes, I believe so. Yeah, they are. Yeah, it's a, okay. I think it's pretty so much it's exactly the same. very different than multi-residential, right? So multi-residential is it's, it's very governed here. Yeah. Uh, by the by the the tribunal administratif. Because then it's like four percent or something like that. Well, it, it it depends. The 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 tribunal every year um it gives a guideline. Again, it's a guideline. So people have a misunderstanding about that, right? That it's that it's set in stone. It's not. 
It's always between really? the landlord. Yeah, it's always between the landlord and the tenant, right? The tribunal gives a guideline for 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 a few different asset classes of multi-residence. So they'll tell you, okay, if you're heated by energy, like if the if the landlord's supplying the heating, then it's a certain number based on the adjustments of those costs. If it's heated by tenant, then it's maybe a little bit less. It's adjusted to different costs. But they give a guideline. Uh, they do still allow the market to operate, you know, relatively freely, but you are governed. So what happens is if a landlord gives an unjustified increase on the, this is on the multi-residential side, not on the industrial side. If, if you give an unjustified increase, um, the, the tenant has a right to contest it. So they can file with the, with the towel and say that they could say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm contesting this. And then they'll have a hearing and the landlord will have to explain, you know, um, why you can't just say, well, those are market rents. You know, they don't allow you to <laughs> yeah, do that in that yeah, regard. Um, but you can say, look, you know, my, my municipal taxes went up such, uh, my insurance costs, which are a whole other thing. Those have been rising rapidly in the last few years. My insurance costs are up 20% this year, X, 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 or Y. Um, and then the, the, the tribunal will, will render a decision. So they're not going to necessarily say, look, we said it's 2.1%, it's 2.1%. There's a conversation to be had, but of course to go back to your point, it's not where the industrial and commercial yeah, business. Yeah, right. The industrial and commercial business is a much more um, free market model. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. it's 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 a commerce, right? By yeah. definition, it's commercial, right? Whereas residential, multi-residential, although on the investor side it's a business, you have to remember that on the end user side, it's a home, mm -hmm. which falls under a more fundamental right of life right like yeah. i need a roof over my head you can't yeah. just tell me that like because next year you know prices went up that you can throw me out so i i understand where that comes from so they try and as best as they can to do a juggling act and a balancing act is it a perfect system no well but, thank god honestly because dude every single year i get my insurance for like my office oh yeah. another 20 percent yeah. raise i said man yeah this like this is the business. Every yeah. year it's a twenty. Ever since I've been there for five years, it's yeah. been a twenty percent raise every single year. Yeah. So I'm thinking, thank God for rent. You know what I mean? Or yeah. rent, Christ for sure. And you have to remember you know? also, like, um, and again, like I'm, you know, I'm of course, personally speaking, I I'm more on the land. I'm in the landlord chair because we no, own multi residential properties. But I'm also very. I always make an effort to be very cognizant and recognize what the global reality is and trying to be unbiased in it. And you have to remember that even though the, the Tribunal Administratif du Logement might tell you, okay, you can only raise 3%. Actually, this year, I think they, they allowed a little more because they, they do understand inflation is a reality, right? So they're, they're not deaf to that. Um, but let's say you get a 4% increase, okay, or 35 4% increase. But you might tell me, man, my insurance costs went up 10% or 15% and my, my taxes went up 9%. That's right. That's true. Your costs don't represent the totality of your revenue, right? Correct. So there may be 35% of your total revenue. So that 4% increase on the totality of your revenue will still, generally speaking, make it that your profitability still goes up this year with a 4% increase on the total of your rent versus the 6% or 8% increase on your cost because the yeah. cost only represents 30 or 35% of your operating base, yeah, right? Yeah. 100%. So, it's still a profitable business for the landlord. Yeah, like it's, correct. It's not an unprofitable business. If I was in the position of the landlord, of course I would want, you know, the 20%. Yeah. If I raise my my clients every year 20%, I'd be a happy camper. But it's like when it's 
flipped on. You're like, damn, someone's charging you a 20% increase. Yeah. You're like, Phew. it's yeah. crazy, you know? But it's like, just like putting yourself in that perspective. Not to say one's better or not, but yeah, it's just putting yourself in that perspective. No, for sure. Like, And, and it is, it remains, you know, someone's house, it remains a, you know, it's an integral part of their well-being as a, as a human being, right? It's like a fundamental, it's literally the fundamental is housing and food. Like those are the two fundamentals that rarely get cut, like in someone's personal budget. You cut everything else. You'll cut your car. You'll cut your outings. Your housing is important. So I understand why there is that level of protection for the for the consumer there. And I, and I actually think as much as, you know, it'd be to my benefit to say it's not. I actually think it's a good thing. It's it's not a bad thing. Society has to op- operate optimally and people having a secure place to live and being able to afford that is an important part of, of keeping society running properly. But you have to remember that things going into the skew of the landlord, this is a relatively new phenomenon. You know, we're all pretty young here. Um, but if you talk to more old timers who have been in the business 30, 40 years, you know, I've heard it from them. It wasn't like that. You know, they dealt with vacancies you know, real vacancies. And they would sometimes have years where they were cutting rent to keep people in their apartment buildings. Wow. You know, there was a big joke of like, on a, if you talk to some guys who have been in the business a long time, they always tell you, first of July was, uh, you know, fresh paint day because landlord, uh, not landlord, sorry, tenants would say, well, I'm renting across the street. He's painting my apartment brand new and it's the same price. So the landlord would be like, I'm going to paint your apartment. I'll fix it up. The dynamics have now shifted. I would tell you it's probably been 10 to 15 years that the dynamics have shifted into the landlord's favor. Um, and of course, much more in the last five to seven. Like it's really been like now you like want people to leave. You know, you're like, this yeah, guy's yeah, leaving. Yeah. And you why know? do you but think Before, that? like it why was you, the opposite. Well, because you, you, you could were, get so much rent. Well, that's why. why do I think that's happened? Like I'm, I'm just saying like why, why in like let's say, you know, in the last – what was the big – change i should say in in your guys's opinion two things one one more on the specific to our market and another just more general the general population remember that it's always driven by population population equals in real estate equals demand okay Okay. so and demand is the underlying demand and supply and demand are the fundamentals of where prices are going to go so demand is going up right people need a place to live there's just more people and we're not building enough to keep up with the amount of people. So that's the main reason. The other reason more specific to our market here in Montreal and in Quebec is that our situation has significantly improved in the last 15 years. Economically, politically, socially, Quebec is, you know, thriving. You know, we went through rough periods. We were probably very young during it. You guys may be young, of course, younger than me. But, you know, Quebec in the 90s, in the late 80s and 90s was a tough place to do business. There was a lot of political insecurity, a lot of instability. Money doesn't like instability. You know, investment doesn't like instability. Um, It also had an impact on business, not only just let alone the fact that we did have at some point a certain exodus of population leaving towards other provinces and other places. Uh, we also had businesses that were leaving, so that drove down wages, you know, which which it, it, it's, a, it's a feedback loop, right? It spirals. It's been about 15, 20 years. Things are on the upswing again and now, you know, consistently so. So much so that Quebec is actually being looked at now in Canada as one of the most interesting places to invest with the most upside. It's funny. I was actually reading an article the other day in the Financial Times that was saying, I think they 
the headline was a little bit for clicks. I don't think that it, this is necessarily going to transpire, but just the fact that it, a headline like that can exist was really a nice thing to see. They're like, could Montreal challenge Toronto for I saw economic too, yeah. supremacy in Canada? Now, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not saying that. The, and that's not necessarily what the article was saying either, but it was raising the question for debate. So what that tells me is we, we're not going to supplant Toronto in terms of wages and prices and whatnot. But the fact that we're in the conversation means that there is an upward swing here in Quebec. And for a long time, we were too cheap. So that's another thing you have to remember. And that on the industrial side is a very important thing as well. We were too cheap for a long time. So there was a lot of catching up that the market yeah, had to do yeah. that we, we now saw in the last few years, accelerated by COVID, accelerated by cheap money, accelerated by all kinds of factors. And then you get the straight lineup that you saw yeah. in the last few years. And that's why when, when it comes to residential, that's what kind of made me a bit scared to devote all my time to that area. It's because you're dealing with people's living, like where they live, where they where they raise their family. Yeah. It's a bit different. Personal transaction. Yeah, personal transaction. Whereas with industrial, it's like theoretically, if a guy's lease, well, not theoretically, if a guy's lease ends tomorrow, you could you could 10 times the amount of rent that he was yep. paying on the same day. It wouldn't if matter. If the market justifies it. If the it, market justifies it. it, you could do whatever you want. And it's because you're, what they explain is that they're assuming that they're, that they're knowledgeable enough to conduct a certain level of business. Whereas with residential, they, they, they assume that these people aren't aware of all the intricacies of business They and they need to protect them. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I find it's just a whole different ballgame. So it's super interesting to see your perspective Definitely. on that. Definitely. When you're talking to investors, you assume for the most part, you know, there are new investors yeah. as well, right? And those are, I love working with those people as well because it's like you're really, really helping them kind of understand the foundation of how they can build that wealth. But generally when you're working with investors, you kind of figure that they have a baseline understanding of, and if not a very deep understanding of what you're talking about. So you kind of go right into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the residential side, again, depending, you have some people who've done 20 transactions, they're just like, no problem, send me the document, I know what I'm signing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But on the residential side, there's a lot of first-time buyers and they're making the biggest, the most personal transaction of their life thus far and that will likely always be. So there's a lot of hand-holding. Um, I think that appeals to certain people more and it appeals to certain people less. It's not an indictment on anyone's personality. It's just some people are better suited for it. I actually happen to love it. Um, it, it it's funny for me personally because I love economics. You know, mm -hmm. I love business and I love working with investors and I am a commercial broker and I, I love working on big multifamily files and CMHC financing and how we're going to leverage and where we're going to take the money. But I also love working with a young couple or a young person who's like kind of making their first steps and when you realize that you you handheld them through the entire process that they wouldn't have been able to get through without you and that you kind of cared for them in that regard, I, I find there's a there's a deep satisfaction I get out of it beyond just, you know, the financial compensation, which is great. But there's a deep satisfaction I get out of that. And you're building a business relationship, right? So yeah, if you yeah. advise someone well the first time, it not only pays dividends for them, it pays dividends for you for two reasons. One, they're going to work with you again. Because yep. people genuinely know when you're looking out for them. But also, if you get your clients into something well, you're going to be able to get them out of it well. And they're going to be able to get into something bigger well again. Yeah. So that's a feedback loop again in your favor and in theirs. Good business, I've always believed, is win-win. Yeah. I know some people don't believe that. They think it's a zero-sum game. 
I win means you lose. I don't believe that. I think that good business is a win-win. 100%, 100%. I like that's what I enjoy about the residential side. It's a personal transaction. Um, you know, there's times it's hard because you're dealing with emotions and not numbers and you're like, come on, just see it the right way. But overall, I, I find it. Uh, yeah, I find it to be very rewarding. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes I sense. Find it to be rewarding. So let, let's like on that topic, let's get into like the numbers of things. Mm-hmm. So today, if you're looking to, to invest in property, whether it's residential, commercial, multifamily, industrial, office, retail, whatever you're looking to invest in, you're comparing it to the guaranteed returns that you would get to, you know, bonds or like GICs, treasuries, treasuries, GICs, everything like that. And now I think I, I, I was reading an article this morning that U.S. treasuries, the 10 year is like the highest it's been to, since 2007. In 15 years or in yeah. 20 years, we're, we're nearing like all time modern. High. Exactly. We are at modern. All-time yeah, highs, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's about 5% or more, right? Guaranteed. Well, I mean, guaranteed, assuming the government of the U.S. government doesn't go bankrupt or the Canadian Even government. Even if they do, your, your money is guaranteed because a, a sovereign nation can never default on their debt, right? That's why treasuries always hold a higher... Yeah. Like, they can always print more of the money that they owe yeah, it to exactly. you, right? When you're lending to a company, the company is not the issuer of a currency. Yeah, so exactly. they have to have the currency to issue back. When you're lending to the U.S. government or to the Canadian government or to, or to this ECB in Europe... If you lend them a million euros, they'll give you back a million euros because they create yeah, the euros. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what the value of those euros might be, we can it might debate. be less, but but, but you'll the get reason why treasuries are always you get a lower yield is because the risk premium is always a lot yeah. lower because they're the issuer. But yeah, exactly, I, I get what you're exactly. Saying, yeah. And so now, when we're comparing our the risk of a certain investment, we're we're comparing it to these yields of like let's say five percent, yeah, six percent even maybe, yeah. How do you still justify investing in real estate? So that's a really, really great question. And it's one that I've pondered a lot over the last few months, especially as, you know, fixed yields have become very interesting. Um, And, you know, I'll preface by saying I have a good portion of my net worth in fixed yields right now, right? Like some of it in equities, a lot of it in real estate, but I do believe in fixed income, right? Especially right now, while it's attractive, it's paying you to wait. But if you ask me, like your question was, how do I see that versus, let's say, owning? Let, let's let's talk about investment property, okay? Because residential, it's it's a need, right? Like, yeah, my wife yeah, just yeah. had a second baby. I need a house. Like, my money's in GICs. That's fine, but I need a second, a third room for the baby. So, like, whatever. We're not yeah, yeah, going yeah. there. But investment is a choice, right? R- living is a need. We're gonna let's move away from the need. Let's go towards the choice. Do I invest? Do I give this money to Royal Bank at 5.5% or BMO or whoever? Or do I buy this building, this industrial property, this multi-revenue, this commercial, whatever it may be? Right now, if you're looking at it from a pure narrow lens of I have a million dollars. She's a round number. And I can put it at the bank and it pays me 5.5% on a five-year yield, let's say, so 55000 a year, whatever, compounded over five years. Or I can buy this industrial property or this multi-residential eightplex that pays me, you know, maybe 46000 a year of net revenue if I'm buying it outright. Okay, let's just look at the outright, you know, I'm paying cash for both. Yeah. And you, you say, well, what do I do? Um, it's very tempting to say, you know, take the higher yield for no work and zero risk. Yeah. Right? 
We can end the conversation. That's what most there. people would probably do. It's the wrong decision. In most circumstances. I'm not saying if you're 84 and you're at retirement. Like I'm saying you're a young investor with capital. It's the wrong decision in my opinion. And I'll tell you why I still believe you're better off going into an investment property. Even if it's yielding you slightly less and requiring you to take on work. Forget, Don't forget, there's work in owning mm -hmm, the property, mm -hmm. right? And you're taking on risk. Because, you know, the value can go up. There could be a flood. There could be a problem. And you got to put in capital, inject, and whatever. Your tenant can leave. Your tenant can go belly up if it's industrial, whatever the case may be. Why is it still better to make the investment in the investment property as opposed to the fixed income yield? If you're buying a GIC, let's go with a GIC or a bond, but let's just say a GIC because it's the product that most people are familiar with, okay? If I give the bank a million dollars and a 5% GIC, in five years, I'm getting back. I know exactly what I'm getting back. And it's virtually guaranteed unless the bank goes bankrupt, which... We have bigger know. problems. We got bigger problems. I always exactly. say that. Like, exactly. if, if the Royal Bank ain't there tomorrow, money is not your problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You worry about finding food and <laughs> yeah, shelter yeah. We got and bigger, you have enough tomatoes. We're, we're in a different situation. Because <laughs> exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. these are like systemically important institutions. Especially in Canada. Yeah, in yeah. Canada. It's like, if tell me Bank of America is not there tomorrow or J.P. Morgan Chase, like... You know, my, big my, my money is maybe not the issue. Like yeah, we've yeah, we yeah, got yeah, bigger yeah. problems. So let's 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 kind of we'll digress. We'll go back to to where we were. So if you take that million dollars, you put it into GIC at five percent. In five years, when that GIC comes to renew, okay. Do you know what your income is? You know what your yield is going to be? You have no idea. Could be twelve percent. Could be twenty eight percent. Could be zero percent. Could be negative. I mean, really? I know it's never happened here in North America, but it's happened in elsewhere in the world. Japan has had negative bond rates for year for years. Even Europe at one point was I. I mean, don't quote me, but they were flirting with it. If it wasn't there, it was no, virtually I, in zero Europe. I heard yeah. that if you had it in your bank account, you would lose money. Exactly. I think. I think. I think. And yeah, again, don't quote actually... me on this. Might have to fact check this, but I think at one point, like German bonds on the euro were were in negative territory. So the point I'm making is that in five years. You don't know what that dividend yield is, what that yield on that investment is, right? Let's say that was paying five and a half percent. Or I can sell you a building, let's say an eight plex right now, that at today's rate is paying you four and a half percent cap rate. Let's just say, okay, maybe we can get a better deal. Maybe there's some worse deals, but let's just say it's a four and a half cap. You're making less yield for more work and you're taking on risk. But here's where the caveat comes in. That 4.5% yield that you just bought, you bought it for eternity. Meaning, the price you paid for it at 4.5% in five years, it's not going to be like, oh, well, now it's 3% or 2% or 4%. That 4.5%, it's forever. And actually, it's even more. Mm -hmm. Because your GIC doesn't pay you more interest every year. It doesn't go up in interest every year. Unless you're taking a one-year term, but then again, you're in the same problem. You don't know where the yield is going, right? Your rent over a long period of time is going up every year. So you bought the building at a four and a half cap, but five years later, it's a six cap. Ten years later, it's a seven cap. It's a 14 cap. And that's forever. Right. It's not temporary. So you're buying an eternity bond that you're giving to your children and their children, right. and their children after them. And then to add the third factor onto that, 
the investment of the mil- never mind just the yield, but the investment of let's say the million dollars into the building, the capital itself is appreciating in value again over the medium to long term. I don't want to look at the short term because things go up and down in the short term, but look at a seven, 10, 15 year time horizon. The capital itself, that million dollars that you put in, 15 years later is worth $2 million, 1.5, 2.5, wherever the market went. So the capital itself appreciated, which it didn't in a GIC because you just got the yield. And the yield itself is consistent and growing. Mm -hmm. So for 1%, let's say less or 1.5% less now in the short term over three and a half years, but I guaranteed it forever and growing – I mean, I think asking the question is answering it. But then, but then yeah. add leverage to that, right? So then, so it's yeah. like your million dollar GIC is getting you fifty thousand yeah. a year, let's say, compounded. But yeah. then, your million dollar investment in real estate, assuming you put let's say twenty percent down, sure. is worth five million. Absolutely. So you're making your four and a half percent on five million. Absolutely. So you're actually already winning on day one. So with the leverage. Leverage is obviously the the absolute key to to building real wealth in real estate, right? And it's one of the only asset classes in the world where a lender banks are going to allow you to leverage as hard, right? There's there might be other asset classes out there, but they're, they're uh, you know they're not like real estate. Mm-hmm. So the thing with the leverage is that right now, right now, like I'm literally talking today. You know, three years ago it was totally different. Three years ago the equation. What? So let, let, we'll go back in time. We'll compare it to today, and then we'll kind of see where that brings us into the future. Five years ago, when you were buying a building or a multi-residential building, you were buying, let's say, four and a half, I'll go back to four and a half percent cap rate, okay? But you were borrowing at the bank for, let's say, three and a half or 3.25 or three, whatever it is. So let's say the building you were buying was $5 million and you were putting in a million of your own money, okay? So that million of your own money, because it's not leveraged, that's your money, you're making the four and a half percent yield on it. The four million you borrowed, you're borrowing it at three and a half percent, but it's yielding four and a half percent, right? Because that's the yielding yeah, property. Yeah. So you're making one percent on the bank's money. Yeah, yeah. No brainer. Like you're 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 literally making money on the money they're giving you. So yeah. you're like, give it to me, whatever, no yeah. problem. I'm making on it. It was very easy to explain to people why that was a good investment. Cause it was it was profitable from day one mm-hmm, right? like mm-hmm. it's profitable now yeah imagine in the future today with rates rising as high as they have and prices not coming down accordingly right in terms of investment property the equation has changed on the short term because now i got to convince someone why they should be borrowing at 5.7 percent to make a 4.5 percent yield yeah yeah now you're losing money mm-hmm more complicated yeah does that mean you shouldn't do it no it means you probably still should with certain caveats right you got to make sure you got the backing to do it you got to be able to anticipate that you're going to have negative maybe some negative cash flow or less cash flow you're sacrificing a return like i'm not telling you it's a blanket everybody should go do it go run tomorrow and buy whatever you You might have to put more in the deal of course of course it's a more complex equation now but it's still worth it because your revenue, again, over a long term, if you're going to look at it at a chart, is going to grow. It's going to offset 
at some point in the near future on that curve, the borrowing cost. So you're going to get to equilibrium. And then eventually you're going to tilt back into positive. So, but in the return, in the meantime, you may be able to acquire the asset for less than you would have a year ago or a year before when rates were much more favorable to you. So it may be putting you into negative, whereas a year ago, even at a higher purchase price, you were in positive. But remember that your interest rate is variable. When I say mm -hmm. variable, it doesn't mean you're on a variable loan. I mean, it will renew at different rates. Your principles your, is locked in. You buy that building at $5 million, In five years, if rates drop, the seller is not coming back and saying, well, now you owe me 800 grand more. It's still 5 million and it's been paid down and whatever and you keep, but your revenue is offsetting and growing. So now you have to have a bit of a stronger backbone, more solid financially and a more long-term time horizon. You got to be a little more steadfast and long-term in your vision. But if you can have those two things, I think it's still very self-explanatory that the leverage will help you grow because... Oh, and we didn't even touch on the fact that the capital will appreciate, again, over a long-term curve because the capital is really what you're buying, right? right? You took $4 million of the bank's money that wasn't yours. You never had control of it. They gave it to you to acquire that asset, which over a long curve is growing in value. Year one, year two, maybe it even went down a little bit. Possible. Three, four. But over a 10, 15-year stretch, you're going to see the curve is going to go like this. Right. So you borrowed their money to produce that return. And then the returns are growing, eventually going to get you to equilibrium with the interest rate, eventually will tip into your favor. So again, on the long term, you're still a huge, huge, huge net winner by buying that long term fixed revenue versus the temporary short term, the bank's paying you now, who knows in three years what they're giving you. A hundred percent. And you know what? And that makes, and I, I love everything you said. It makes, like, for me, for someone who's just, I don't know that much compared to you guys, but it makes a lot of sense. And I feel like it's sort of an advantage of thinking that way because I feel like with Amazon, with, you know, social media, everything being so quick, 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 that less and less people are thinking about the long term and thinking about, oh, I need this tomorrow. Like right now on e-commerce, why is Amazon number one? Because you buy something, you know, in two days you're getting that quick fix. Yeah. We're kind of selling that quick fix. So Instant I, gratification. Exactly. Whereas back in the day, you know, our grandfathers would tell us a story where they like walked up, they walked uphill, they walked downhill and yeah. like they waited 10 years, whatever this, that. Where I feel like we're losing that mindset and to the point is like, if you can think of head and think, you know what, 15 years to 15 years to a lot of people is like, yeah, it's, it's like an eternity. Eternity. So it's, it's not like, that long, though. When you really so you think guys about are making it. me think. You know what? Like, it, I used to think a lot because you know we're we're such like a fast pace. Like now, 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 yep. now. So I would have thought the same way. Like, oh, you know what? Five point five percent. You know, boom. Rather than fifteen years, but yeah. I think in the long run, especially with the way that we're going, and you know, I don't know. Like I'm just saying my opinion. I think that that's ultimately going to be the long strategy because yeah. a lot of people are thinking short-term rather than long-term with the progression of how we're going. Everything is immediate. We live in a society where you want things now, now, Snap your now. fingers, it's there. It's there. The Amazon guy comes three times a day. He didn't exactly. come once a day. Like exactly. you figure once a day is enough. He One time he made three rounds at my house. I told him like just, you know, Come once. crazy, man. <laughs> you know? The you UPS guy is one of the highest paid people in, sure. the, in the city yeah. nowadays. But Your point is super valid and like, it also has to do with your time horizon, right? Correct. Like we're all young here. 
15 years is a very, very, very long time. And it's also so fast. Like when you fat you're 25, 25 okay. at 40 years old, you're going to be in the prime of your life. Like, you know, you're going to God willing, you're still going to be healthy. You're going to still be physically able, mentally sharp. You still got the best years ahead of you at 40. Maybe God willing for you, a young family, whatever growing, if that's what you're aiming towards. The decisions you make today are going to exponentially change the quality of your life in the prime of your life. When you sacrifice something now, you know, humans are unique in that. We're the only species on earth that can sacrifice instant gratification for future gain. That's what makes us what we are. So you factor that, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deny myself this trip to you know, Tulum this week or this weekend or wherever where my friends are going. I'm going to drop money I barely have just to get my you know, YOLO fix today. I'm going to take that and I'm going to put it aside. But in 15 years from now, when you let that compound, you let that grow, and you, and you, success is the is the culmination of a lot of small good decisions. Correct. It's it's not one really good decision and a bunch of bad ones. You know, I guess some people maybe luck out into that, but mostly it's the culmination of small good decisions and good habits. And they're not gonna all pay dividend at once. They're gonna they're gonna pay dividend all at once later. They're gonna compound it, exactly. You know, compound interest, it's its a wonder. Like, I don't even fully understand it. But if you look at the curve of it, all the gains kind of come late at the end. And they all come at once like this. That's how compound interest works. Oh, man. Jesse, I couldn't agree more. That is literally my favorite book. And yeah. anyone listen to this, like the compound effect, yeah. I vouch for it. So I told every single person the compound effect is the book that changed my life. I used to always look for instant gratifi yeah. gratification. And I've told every single person that I referred it to, I said, if you read the book and if it doesn't give you like an aha moment, yeah. I will pay for the book yeah. on my dime. I, I, and I, I haven't read it, more. but I, speaking with I, you I'm guys sure in real it, estate, it speaks for itself. It speaks for exactly. itself. Yeah. Correct, man. And it's right and, and there. So like, and so compound, like, compound interest, it's, you know, we talk about it a lot in a financial sense, but it's not only financial. Your life is the culmination of the compounded decisions you're making. You know, in the relationships you're entertaining, in the people that you're dating, in the friendships you keep, in the way you care for your health, in the way you – the mindset you put yourself into, it compounds. Those small good decisions – and look, none of us are going to make good decisions all the time. I mean I know you don't. I know I don't. I know you don't. I don't have to know that you don't to know you don't. You know? Yeah. Like we all don't. <laughs> we're just human. But we're all human. We all have more flaws than we can count. But the more good decisions you can add and you kind of make that part of the – the way that you operate, your modus operandum, it will compound. And you may not see it for five years and say, I gave up all this. I missed that trip. I missed this. This guy is leasing the BMW he can barely afford. And here I am with my whatever, you know, car that's getting me around. But then those decisions that you, those, those good decisions you're taking are eventually, I believe at least, and it's been, I think the case in my life, that it's eventually going to take you to a point where you're going to be faced at a crossroads of another decision that's going to be a big one. And you're going to have trained your mind and you're trained yourself into taking the right decision. And that decision is going to be huge. And that's going to exponentially lift you up. And it doesn't happen. It's like saying I'm running a marathon in six months from now. It's six months away. It's, come on. I got six months. Yeah, you're going to go from zero to running 42 kilometers in a week? No, man. You got to run a K today, 2K tomorrow, 3K the day after. Yep. To eventually in six months get to running 42. You can't just be like, 
I got time. You don't have as much time as you think. You know, in and that the regard. earlier you start, the better, you're, the better you are. Huge. And that, the better and, off you are. And to bring it back, that's why I think that, personally speaking, I'm not saying factual, but yeah. our society that with the instant gratification of, you know, news, uh, Amazon, everything just being right now, 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 we're losing that perspective of 10 years seems so far, further than yeah. it really is, yeah. and 15 years. Yep. Yeah. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. That's something I think that is, after speaking with you guys, it's like I have like an aha yeah. moment. Like, whoa, prior to this conversation, I probably like if, you know, we would have been speaking, I would have been like, come on, obviously I'm going to take the 5.5%, you know, like make that quick yeah. fix because I think we live in such a society yeah. that is a quick fix. And I think that brings us to the, like, you know, the next talk, next topic, pardon me, of this society right now, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. of how we're being raised or how we're being influenced, I should say, not raised, but more influenced with social media and getting everything to our demand. And I think, Michael, you had something that you want to talk about, about currently, you know, how everything's happening right now. Well, I would just say, like, my opinion on people today is that, like you're saying, for the instant gratification, we're not looking at what can we do today? Let's say our goal is to make money so that we could provide for ourselves and our family in the future. We're not really looking at it like, what can I do today that will give me the highest return on my investment in the future? We're looking at it like, what can I do today to feel good, to be happy, Mm -hmm. to experience cool things, to make everybody around me know that I'm having a good time. Exactly. To like, whereas, I don't know, for me personally, obviously on a daily basis, I think, am I having a good day today? Am I feeling good? Am Am I in a good mood? Like today is a good day. Today is a bad day. I think about those things on a daily basis, but it doesn't really impact kind of my actions over a long, over a, over a yeah. long term horizon. Like my actions over a long term horizon are the same regardless of how I feel on a daily basis. You know what I mean? Yep. And I find that consistency. Th- consistency. Yeah. Exactly. Regardless of how I feel, because my long term goal is like I want to be here in fifteen years. I want to be at this level, whether it's wealth, family, like taking care of people, doing like my career. So that's, I want to get there. I need to take specific actions on a daily basis, regardless how I feel. Whereas I find that the generation today is so preoccupied about what they're feeling and experiencing today that they kind of overlook what that decision, how that decision yeah. will impact the next 10, 15, yeah. 20 years. of. There's their a number life. of reasons why I think that that's transpired that way. Part of it is, you know, instant gratification. Yeah, I mean, like off likes. if we if we're going to go off the, 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 the copycat answer that everybody knows, you know, social media plays a huge part of it. Yep. But let's let's not go there too much, because I think it's been talked about a lot. You know, everyone knows Look, everyone you see on the Internet, like whoever's watching this, if you think they're happy, they're not. Like just whatever they're trying to show you, it's not true. Okay. They have bad days just like you and you're seeing their whole life through a filter. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like how it's so funny how humans lost sight of this because, you know, before social media, we've had celebrity for a long time, right? Like celebrity is not a new phenomenon and television and media has been around for a century. So it's not a new phenomenon. The only difference is that now any one of us can do it in our phones, but that's been around forever. And if you look at celebrities, from a very long time back 
they look like they live the greatest life in the world. Oh, the glitz and the glamour, and they always look great. But then, you know, how many of them you found out were battling depression and battling insecurity and anxiety? And like the most beautiful people and the richest people, you find out this gorgeous woman was like insecure with herself and the way she looked. You're like, how's that possible, right? So, or this guy or whatever, that, that's a phenomenon that's been around forever. People forgot it. And all of a sudden, it's like now you're looking at it in social media and you remember that like that picture you're looking at of that guy or that girl or that trip or whatever or through 12 filters and you know when you really see it by the way if you've ever been on a vacation and you see people creating content for their social media mm -hmm. it's really like i'm not a big social media guy but it's i could imagine that if i was it would be a really humbling moment where you'd be <laughs> like you see the you know, whatever, the guy or the girl posing and and you're just like, do they look like they're having fun? No, they're not. Yeah. They're taking 17 takes. Take it again from this angle, from that angle. Oh, oh. But then in that picture, when it's roll time, you know, they got the smile and the slow-mo and that is psychologically affecting people's happiness. And it's a feedback loop of like, well, they went on that trip and it made them happy and I'm going to do it. But you got to step back and realize that what you're seeing isn't reality. It, it just isn't. Like, yeah. And, I, and I, I rarely make blanket statements, but I'm going to make one here. It's not true. No, it's not. For everybody all, all yeah. the time. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not – I don't even want to say like it's in 50% of the – it's not true. Yeah. Because when you're really, really having a good time in your life and a good moment – your first instinct is not to reach for your phone and pose and try no. and make it seem because you're trying to project something. That's not to say social media is a bad thing. It's it's served so many great things, great purposes, great for business, great for networking. It's wonderful. We connect with people and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I, I have it. I participate in it. But the image that it tries to sell on a personal human level of look at the life I'm living and look at how happy I am, look how wonderful I am and how that affects the people viewing it it's terrible it's, it's horrible so it's, that's yeah that's one thing and i agree with you because i'm i just went on vacation recently and i'm thinking all the best moments of my vacation with my family were none of the ones that were taken on the post i think nope. those were the ones where i was the most bored where i just <laughs> showcased the view but like if i think back to vacation i just took with my father my brother yeah. my girlfriend and my whole family and his girl and his fiance um literally were the ones that only us sure. five remember and sure. I, I i can attest to that man yeah well you know you know what's 100%. an interesting thing too like if if we take a poll between the three of us we've all probably been out a lot in our lives you know clubbing bars whatever restaurants out with friends if i tell you the nights that like generally speaking the nights you had the best time in your life even before social media and all that stuff yeah. are they the nights where it was the big night out where you knew from six months ago it's on the calendar and everyone's going and everyone's this and you're all hyped up about it and you're psyched up about it? Or is it the random Thursday where you, you were at the game and then your buddy calls you and he's like, come meet me at this place. And you're like, oh, I'm a bit tight. Just come. And then your other friend shows up and then it's that. And the next thing you're getting home at five in the morning, you're like, that was the best night ever, right? Yeah. Yeah. No expectations night. You're like, that really was awesome. And then you, you met this great girl there or whatever. And you're, or was it the night where like for eight months it was on the calendar and you, you're hyped up in your suit. You got to be ready. And that night's always, I don't want to say always, but it's often a letdown. 
Yeah, yeah. Because you've got so much like anxiety about it, and my collar fixed properly, and how am I going to look in the pictures? And we hired the photographer. It's it's like a that's like an analogy of of how social media is, right? It's like it's so curated, 100%. and it's so just planned. It's like expectations of like expectations. you're supposed to be living this perfect life. Yeah, and, you're supposed to be a trillionaire by the yeah, age yeah. of nineteen. But, but what, everyone's rich, you know. But so what I will like, say is, like, I hope at one point we come back to equilibrium because, like, our our parents they sacrificed everything, yeah, and they had no kind. Of, they they didn't give into any of their, I guess, urges, right? Or at least they gave into a lot less of them than we. At do. least not the ones they tell us about. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> but they like they didn't have they didn't have they didn't have to fight against so many of the things that we fight against. Like their urges weren't instantly available well, to them. You know, Mike, it, it's, it's it's interesting that we get on this topic because this is something that I I've thought about for a number of years as to where the difference in the generations is. And you know what? Every generation, like let's let's be a little optimistic, guys. Every generation thinks that the world's ending with the next one these (laughs) kids today i think that's been said since the time of the caveman literally these kids today will never make it out of this cave (laughs) so like we think the same they think about they think the same maybe about our generation we're gonna think the same about our kids we're gonna be like dude we were messed up but not like this this is you know like the hippie generation in the 60s the one before them said this is the end of the world you know like these guys have lost it you know like this is it like i know we said it before but this is it (laughs) we're saying it too and everyone's gonna say it so in the end, it's all going to work out roses because look at that generation. Look what they built and look what we're going to build. And our kids, we're going to think they're messed up three ways from Friday and they're going to build something greater than we did. I'm very, very optimistic on that. But one thing I find that's interesting about this generation, even the one maybe a little older than you, maybe leading into my generation, the, the generation I would say born like in the 80s and beyond, okay, is the first generation that in the Western world, okay, like we're going to preface this by saying like if you live in you know a different country, they have different realities. But like Canada, the US, Western Europe, whatever, you grew up after the Cold War. You grew up after the Second World War. You grew up after Vietnam. You grew up after the atomic bomb scare where they were hiding under desks. You grew up after the First World War, obviously the great, great, great grandparents. And that generation, which is the baby boomers now, they came literally baby boom after the war, after the Second World. They're a product of of what happened after the Second World War. And they lived, and their parents especially lived, very, very hard generation, right? Like there was real, the we don't know where the world is going, you know, yeah. people getting sent off to war. You know, we'd all be colonels in the army if it was 60, 70 years ago. And, and we should respect that because, you know, we, we don't live under those circumstances, thank God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but the boomer generation is the first generation that instilled to their kids. And again, I'm saying this without any expert training. It's just from my perception. Yeah. yeah. My perception, but not even experience, it's my perception. Look at the shift that happened from the seventies to the eighties in terms of media. Okay. The seventies were, even if you watch movies, the seventies were gritty. It was a gritty era. There's a lot going on. The sixties was revolution social justice, very just causes that were came to the forefront, a lot of bubbling. The 80s came, the Cold War was ended or was about to end, you know, it was at the end. We, the Western world knew it, it won that battle. Money was coming in, the 80s excess, the boomers were young parents, they made money, 
And what did life become about? It didn't become about surviving anymore. It became about happiness. So all of a sudden, it was from the 70s, you had nothing like it was very different than the 80s. You had the kids around the tree with the Super Nintendo at Christmas and McDonald's and the Happy Meal and happiness. And those that generation, God bless them. I know a lot of people rag on them. And, oh, boomers this, boomers that. They gave their kids a better life. They they gave their kids a life that was built on happiness. You want the, the, the present under the tree, you know, the new Super Nintendo, the new N64. The There was no war. There was global security. We didn't live any war. I mean, you know, now we're seeing, you know, obviously certain things going on in the world. And we're like, oh, my God. It's a first for our generation to be confronted with those things. September 11th was really kind of where it, it shot it back into everyone's face of like, oh, crap, you know, things happen in the world. There was like 20 years of like peace and security and prosperity. So that whole generation, our generation, the millennials, they grew up chasing happiness, not survival. I know there's exceptions. You know, there's not everyone lived getting the Super Nintendo under the tree. But I'm saying just kind of making a blanket statement. If you take it proportionately versus like kids grew up in the 40s or the 50s or the 60s where it was just dad and mom put food on the table. That was that was it. You know, so life changed, you know, like you see it in the movies, you see it in the media, Pepsi ads and, you know, Ferris Bueller's day off. And like it just changed in the 80s and in the 90s. And it became about happiness as opposed to like the grit of survival. Yeah. And that, I think, spilled into the, our generation as we grew of like, wait, sacrifice, like hard times. You know what I mean? Like, what do you mean? Everything's always been great. And mom and dad have provided and life's been good and secure and safe and clean drinking water and whatever you need. But I think that played a big part in it and why you see younger generation today kind of a little more sensitive to certain topics and like just maybe having a harder time adapting to to some of the harsher realities of like, look, life's a competition. It always was. Yeah. And your parents, maybe because that generation did well, sheltered you from it with the best of intentions, but it didn't necessarily have – always the best of outcomes in in every sense in some senses it did but in some senses it hindered certain you know aspects of it as far as i see it i agree agree, man and i'd hope we'd go back to a a point at some at some time in our life i hope we go back to a point where we we realize the value in like discipline yeah and in in you know doing things that will fulfill us in the long term that don't immediately give us gratification yep. but it's not only delaying gratification it's like doing the things that actually give us gratification gratification that lasts a longer period of time yep. you know what i mean like for example raising a family yep there's no single moment and there's not many single moments in raising a family where you're like this decision was the like I mean, actually, there is a lot of singular moments that you're like, this is the best. No, but I know what you mean. Like, but like it's it happens very yeah far and I know what you mean. It's not like a single moment where you're like, wow, this was so worth it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a culmination. Of looking back and being like, it's real fulfillment. That's why it's real fulfillment. Exactly. It's like the difference between eating a candy bar versus eating a a nutritious meal. The candy bar gives you the instant jolt of energy, but how do you feel 15, 20 minutes later? Like garbage exactly whereas eating a nutritious meal sometimes you're like you know heavy after whatever you ate but you're like wow now i feel good for the day you know it's it's that type of reward 
which kind of you were touching on before the instant gratification. Correct. Yeah, no, you, it, it's, it's a really good point. And, and the discipline is a huge thing. I think that we all lack it to mm-hmm, a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I do. I, you know, I don't want to speak for you guys. Oh, but man, I'm, listen, I, I know I do. Like, I'm biased if I, you know, everyone kind of leaps into it. I don't sure. know. With the, with the times, right? Yeah, it's, a like, daily, it's a daily it's struggle. It's a daily, daily struggle. It's a daily struggle with everyone, with the times that we live in, right? Yeah. It's like, if I don't get my, if, if my package says it's going to be here in five days, yeah. I'm like, oh, if it's there for in sure. seven days, I'm like, what the hell? I you yeah. know what I mean? I'm like, I'm not the type of person that's going to complain or with this or no, that, but, but you know what I mean? Like, but it'll I'm, affect I'm you mad. in one fashion. I'm still like sure. mad. I'm like, whoa, and okay, relax. I'm not above it either. Like, I like to think I, I, I have a good mindset on those things most of the time, but there are certain things that like, I have to check myself sometimes and be like, wow, that yeah. was ridiculous, you know? And, and, and sometimes I only realize it in hindsight after I've terrorized everyone in my life for a few weeks about something I'm complaining about or like some sense of entitlement and, and and that actually, you know what that that word entitlement, I, I find that's a very important word because, to me, that is the single most detrimental thing to your success in life is entitlement. If you are entitled, if you have a sense of entitlement, entitlement to whatever it may be, like I'm owed this, it will it will one it will hinder your happiness because you'll realize that the world is not going to pay you what you think it owes you, and it will generally lead you towards bad decision making. Interesting. When you're entitled, it's like, and 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 generally speaking, people don't like to be around people who are entitled, right? Yeah. People feel they're owed, like the world owes me, or I need to have this, or I should have this, or and and you get that like sense of misplaced anger. It's like, and that's actually, I think, one of the hardest things. I don't have children yet. I know you guys don't either, but. I think that's one of the hardest things about raising kids today, especially if you're well-to-do or you do well for yourself or if you're lucky enough to be extremely well-to-do, which I think we're all working to get to, is how do you raise kids that are – you know, everyone wants to give their kids a great life, right? We all we all talk the same book. We want. Why do you want to do well, Mike? I want to provide for my family. I want to give my family a good life. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Same answer, mm-hmm. I think, from the time of the caveman. I, yeah. want to, I want my kids to have fish to eat when I had no fish. I want my kids to have a house when I had no house. I want my kids to have three cars when I had no car. And whatever that is going forward, everyone has the same objective. But it comes with – it's a slippery slope. You want to give them everything, but at the same time, you want them to realize the value of what you're giving them. That's a hard tightrope to walk, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you don't want to see your kids struggle. You want to see them live a great life. You, that's why you work. It's a selfish thing, by the way. Yeah? We think we're doing it for others. You're doing it for yourself. It's a selfish thing. It is true. It's because you want, you want to see your hard work. Like, yeah. Look what I raised. And you don't want to feel guilty. Yeah, you're like, I work, I sacrifice. Now my kid or well, you know, my family or whoever, my parents, whatever it is. But your parents will say they, they can do it because they're adults. They have the adult mind. They may be sacrificed. So you want to give it to them back. But your kids, they didn't sacrifice nothing. Yeah. Right. If, if if they're born to a well-to-do family, the only thing they ever did was be born, right? right. Which even that wasn't their doing. <laughs> so, you want to give them everything, and it's selfish. You want to see your kid drive a nice car and go to great schools and blah, and be like, look, you know, I took my kids on beautiful vacations, and they have expi- exquisite taste, and they're refined and whatnot. It really it fulfills your ego. You 100%. know, like, but yeah. it's a slippery slope because used well, those resources can that plant can grow so strong and so high but overdo it and you kill it like yeah. it's you know my, my dad told me that when i was young he's like you know he's talking about money in that regard he goes money is like fertilizer on a plant you put the right amount and the right dose and the plant will grow 
you put too much, you'll burn it. Plant dies. Yeah. And, and it's a reality because it builds a sense of entitlement, a sense of I'm owed. So it's a really hard tightrope to walk. And it's one that I don't have kids yet, but I you know, would like to have a family in the near future. And it's 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 going to be my cardinal rule. Like if you're entitled, you get nothing. Yeah. Nothing. 100%. I agree. If you get nothing. If you realize what it is that you have, that you're being given, and you realize the value of it, and you realize what that's worth in relation to what others have, and you realize that one day you're going to have to provide that for yourself, and I'm, I see that you're, you're on the way to having the means to doing that, then I'll give you as much as I can afford to do for you, you know? Yeah. But if you're entitled and I'm just supporting a habit, no. Yeah. You'll get the necessities. You'll get what I have to do to take care of you because that's my – that would be my, uh, my duty to you as a parent. But beyond that, no, I'm not going to feed into your indulgences. And you see it in, in a lot of kids that grow up. And we know a lot of them, right? Some people who grew up very wealthy turned out like aces. And some people who grew up very wealthy and turned out horrible rags. You know, you're like, no good. Exactly. And it's very case by case. Yeah, it is. I agree. On how they're, they're raised. Yeah. So I think. We'll, we'll do one more topic. Sure. Um, the last thing we want to discuss with you is like, what's up? Your pros and cons basically on like each area in Montreal. Sure. We want to do like fast paced pros and cons on each area. So it's kind of like rapid questions like yep. pros, cons. Um, that's kind of how we just want to end sure. it off. Pros, cons. Okay. Yeah. So we'll go really fast. So like okay. you could be brutal to be honest if you have to because it's very quick. <laughs> I don't like think if I have word. any listings in those areas. Think of like it. one word. Uh, I think if I get any listings coming. In yeah, 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 yeah. They all have pros, Mike. They all have pros. They all have pros. <laughs> <laughs> and their their cons is representative of the price, I guess. Yeah, so. but um, we'll start off with a nice one: Hushalaga. Hushalaga pros uh, proximity to the city. Yeah. Eventually, it will have no choice but to spill into that area because of its proximity. Cons, socio demographically, it's been a tougher area. It's a tougher neighborhood, and and it's a tougher area to gen. It's been a tougher area to gentrify. So for investors, it's been a little bit tricky, but its proximity is a huge pro because eventually, just by virtue of that proximity, there's upside. Yeah. Bill Marie. Uh, Ville Marie pros, you know, heart of the action. You're in the middle of it all. Downside, the downtown core has a lot of pressure facing on it right now. People like the downtown. It's like it's like the girl at the dance that everybody likes, but no one wants to ask to dance. <laughs> you know, everyone loves to be close to it, but no one wants to be in it. It's like <laughs> weird. weird. Oh, shit, that's going. Weird, yeah. That's a weird phenomenon. A hunsick. Um, pros. Uh, very beautiful, very scenic, um, relatively close to the, to the urban core. So very, very nice, good quality of life. Cons, a uh, little difficult to get to in track. It's like kind of like isolated. It's in a pocket, you know, mm-hmm. especially certain areas of it, mm-hmm. but, but a great neighborhood. Beautiful. Westmount. Pros. I mean, you know, I don't have to say it. It's just, yeah, it's Westmount. You know, it's, it's, it's like. It's like utopia right next to the city uh, in that regard. Cons, a little stuffy. A little stuffy. Stuffy? If you, depends who you are. I'm not a stuffy guy. A little stuffy, you know? But, but, but I mean, that's, that's a con only to me. It's, other people could like that. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's great. It's, it's a little stuffy, a little, you know, um, a little it'll tight. play by their rules. It's yeah, an old yeah, boys yeah. club. Yeah. Mount Royal. Um, pros... You know the geographical center of the island. Uh, you're you're 15 minutes from everywhere at all times. 
15 minutes from the West Island, 15 minutes from downtown, 15 minutes from the East End. It's like, it's everywhere. Uh, cons, it's a bit like, I don't know how to put it. It's it's a click, you know, it's a club. I agree. I, will, I live in Mount Royal. It's beautiful, though. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> it's it's not really a con. It's like it's uh, it, it it's set in its ways. I guess you could say a little bit like Westbound. You know, like you got to want to be there. You got to be want to be a part of the lifestyle. If you want to be part of it, you'll love it. If yeah. if not, it's like eh, some people feel like you know. No, I'd like to be somewhere else. But it's yeah. it's amazing. I mean, it's, you can't go wrong buying in town of Mount Royal. Let me be clear about that. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. You I own what? a place there, by the way. So it's like it's actually first place I ever bought. Wow. It was in town of Mount Royal. And I bought it because it was in town of Mount Royal. And that was the right decision. It was the right decision. I was like, uh, like across the street was no longer town of Mount Royal. And I wouldn't have bought it if it wasn't. <laughs> I was like, this is TMR. I got it on my tax bill. Yep. I'm good. And, yeah. and it's been a good decision. It's it's great neighborhood. No kidding. Yeah. And then the last area, the West Island. Ah, oh, a lot of pros, man. It's uh, The West Island is, um, it's got a lot of upside. It's it offers, in my opinion, and I, I'm I'm totally biased when I say this because I grew up there. Uh, I I live there now again. I live here now again. I, I I moved away for years. I went to the city, which was great. But the West Island offers, to me, the best quality of life, especially if you're in the phase of your life where you are raising a family. It's I I, I found myself. I grew up in Kirkland. I mean, now I'm you know moving to Dollard, but. I find myself a lot of times, even as a kid, pinching myself, being like, it's like living in Pleasantville, you know, like it's like everything is just safe and clean and nice and friendly and and trustworthy and, and spacious and convenient. And like you just feel like you can like let loose and live. Mm-hmm. And also there's a really nice demographic of people who live in the West Island because you know, now, especially as time's gone on, it's a relatively, relatively affluent neighborhood. I mean, there's there's pockets, but it's a relatively affluent neighborhood, but it's not a pretentious neighborhood. It's 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 a gen I find it to be a genuine place. You know, it's like everybody's like working hard to pay for this home, to raise their family, and they want to give a good life to their family, and they all just want to live well as a community. That's what I love about it. I agree. It's a good community. It's like Everyone respects each other. A lot of different. It's 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 not homogeneous too, which is what I like about it. It's very diverse, mm-hmm. but diverse in, in the right way, and like in the good sense of the yep. word, in like in the natural way, not in the you know like it's naturally diverse. People of all kinds of backgrounds, people of all kinds of means, and everyone just lives well and respects each other well, and it, it's great. Cons far far away. From- it's Most. not as far anymore as you think, man. It's more and more things are opening up. But yes. You just need a car. Rush. You know what? It had more cons before COVID than it does now. You think? Because, yes. Because before COVID, like I remember when I went to school and we were far less of a population back then in Montreal. Like in, when I was in Sajip 10 years ago now. Is that right? No, no. That, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, longer than 10 years ago. Like 15 years ago. I used to drive from... Kirkland to downtown where I went to school and it used to take me an hour and 30 minutes in traffic. It's no longer the case. With just public transport got better. The REM's coming now. People work less on peak hours. Like everyone worked at the same time at the same hours. It was a pain. Now it's, you know, I find even at five o'clock to go downtown, it's... Honestly, man, it depends. Now there's a lot of 40 minutes, you know, <laughs> it, 35, 40 minutes. Yeah, I yeah. still get there when I have a showing or whatever before. Like I had to book a day to do it. Like, I'm, <laughs> yeah, you I know, you. but yeah, it's a little far. 
we need better restaurants. That's yes. the con. Yes. But, but it's 100%. coming, though. But it's coming, though. Is it? It's coming, yeah, yeah. yeah. You it's have coming. the inside scoop? Yeah, there's a few good spots. There's a few good spots. I, don't, I won't blow the lid over it. I'll let... We'll keep that for the next I'll let time. It, I'll let it, you know, kind of unfold the way it was. But but it's coming. There's better spots that are opening up. But yeah, restaurants, like on the cultural scene, it's been a little bit lacking, you yeah, know? It, is. it has. And, and it still has dragged behind. But it's... It, it's the demand good. is there, so... The demand I mean, is there. Yeah. That's you know, where the opportunity comes. If you have a good restaurant idea, it. man, you will blow and, it out And also, park. like, it, it, it's not just happening in the West Island, too. But again, on a, like from a real estate perspective, there's a lot of... Um, micro centers that have kind of established themselves in the greater Montreal area over the last 15 years, 20 years before when you wanted to go out, there was only one place and it was that, that it was the downtown core, right? Mm. It was, it was St. Lawrence, Crescent, whatever the restaurants. And you went there now, Quartier Distrante. uh, you know, in Laval, you have Centropolis, you have the West Island. that's kind of forming its own hub. You have uh, in the North okay. shore, Blainville, Boisbriand, great restaurants, great cool stuff that's opening up. Bars, clubs, great restaurants, whatever. So there's a lot of, you know, now they're building um, off to carry uh, the, the, what do they call it? Um, uh, Royal Mount. Royal, Royal Mount, right. Is that what it's called? The Royal Mount? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's all these kind of like micro hubs that are opening up. So the West Island is getting its own now new flagship restaurants and stuff opening up because as the population is densifying, people are gravitating more towards the center of their towns as opposed to making the 35, 40, 50 kilometer schlep to the downtown core to have dinner on Friday night or go out or have a few drinks and whatnot. So it's good for real estate. It's good for real estate. There's a lot of, lot of upside everywhere. Thanks for coming. My pleasure guys. Appreciate it. Hope we can do it again. It was uh, was a good time for sure. We could go on forever. Yeah, we could. We could definitely. Thank you so much.